Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Lynda.com. Learn what you want, when you want, with access to thousands of high-quality, easy-to-follow video tutorials, including many about photography. For seven days of free, unlimited, in-depth courses, visit Lynda.com slash TWIP. This week on TWIP, Apple to cease development of its Aperture software, Google adds non-destructive editing to Google Plus Photos, Nikon announces the D810 DSLR, and a discussion about travel photography with Ralph Velasco. It's Monday, June 30th, 2014, and this is TWIP. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today to discuss the world of photography this week are Mr. Derek Story, Mr. Don Komarechka, and the Aperture Expert, I mean, Photos Expert, Mr. Joseph Lenashki. Hey, guys, how you doing? <laughs> doing well. How are you? Doing great. Let's start with Derek. Derek, I haven't seen you on the show in forever. I know you were, you've been out circling the globe doing all kinds of crazy stuff. What's going on in the world of Derek's story? You're right. I, I just got back from uh, two weeks in Europe, and I just had a blast and getting some stuff done now. Then I head off to Maui next week. So I love this time of year. <laughs> a day, a, a month in the life of Derek. Look at yeah. that. Fortunately, Apple was kind enough to save their little uh, bombshell for a while I was here because it would have been difficult on the road to deal with it. Yeah. What what bombshell? Did something happen? I don't. I don't yeah, I, I there was a, a aperture eye photo thing. We probably should check the show notes. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we can talk about that next week. It's not all right. right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Also in the show is Mr. Don Komarechka. Hey, Don. What's going on, man? Hello, Frederick. Uh, busy as always. Uh, did some night photography, and uh, there was a big photo walk in Toronto recently, a, an annual thing that uh, gets a lot of Google Plus uh, users, photographers out uh, to roam around the city streets. And so I had two full days and got lots of images I need to edit, and that's been a lot of fun. Uh, getting out and chatting with photographers is always a blast, too, and, and so that keeps me inspired. So I'm pretty inspired at the moment and been experimenting as, as I have been for quite a while. Uh, I just picked up an ultraviolet modified camera to uh, you know, explore an entirely new world. Uh, a lot of people know I've experimented with infrared and that's a lot of fun. But uh, hopefully I'll find some cool new stuff to explore in UV as well. Crazy. Always the scientist. You're like the Doc Brown <laughs> of photography. I love it. <laughs> I try. All right. Also, last but not least, my good buddy over there, Mr. Joseph Lenaski, a.k.a. the Aperture Expert. Hey, Joseph. <laughs> hey, Frederick. How you doing? <laughs> why, do you, why are you shrinking back there, man? Don't, don't be shy. It's okay. Who's shrinking? Who's shy? Never shy. All right. Cool. Welcome to the Never show. What's going, what's going on with you? I know you, you've got a bunch of stuff going on as well, aside from the big news that happened this week. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know what what big news? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I just got back from a workshop in Bend. Um, or I was attending a workshop actually. It was a landscape photography workshop with photographer Sean Bagshaw, who's really well known for his landscape work, and Zach Schnimpf, who's uh, his partner in crime up there. And it was really cool. You know, landscape isn't something I normally do, and it's one of those things you think, you know, how hard can it be? And then you look at photographs from the professionals, and you go, uh, what? 
wait, how did that happen? I saw right. that sunset. I didn't see that picture. So, yeah, I spent a weekend with those guys, and it was a blast just getting out of my normal shooting zone and learned a lot, came away with a lot of new tips and, and a totally new appreciation for what it takes to create great landscape photography. Primary thing being a heck of a lot of patience, something that I don't usually have for that sort of thing. Revisiting a location like 30 times before it gets the light that you're dreaming of. So pretty, not that uncommon with uh, with those guys. So yeah, I was right. doing that, and while I was out there, I was shooting with that new uh, Lumix GH4, which was a blast. That's a really fun camera to work with. I know you took one to Paris with you, didn't you? I did. I did. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in love with that camera. I mean, I love my GH3, but that GH4, man, is it's insane. Yeah. It's a thing of beauty. So you were you were shooting landscapes with the GH4, man? How how, yeah. how did that work out? Great. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. One of the reasons that I wanted to bring that was because of the expanded dynamic range. You know, the, all the reports with the DxO reports that we were talking about on the show a couple of weeks ago of getting a full stop more dynamic range than the um, than the 5D, Canon 5D Mark III. And it was interesting to sit there with the raw files and post that histogram back and forth and see just how much data was there. It's impressive. Yeah, yeah, it is crazy. And I want to apologize to the listeners. It looks like we're having some some delays or something with Google Hangouts today. It's not our bandwidth. It is something other than that. But we're going to press on and see if we can get this show in the can because this is a pretty important show um, because of the Aperture news. So we're going we're gonna to make it happen. Uh, before we jump into the Aperture news, which is obviously our story number one this week, I want to thank our sponsors for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our friends over at lynda.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com. You can learn what you want, when you want, with high-quality video tutorials at lynda.com. And Lynda gives you everything you need to improve your skills. Lynda offers a variety of instruction. You can learn software, creative business skills, photography techniques, web design, and more. They have over 2,000 courses and over 100,000 tutorials. They offer courses for all levels, and they add new courses each and every day. Their courses are taught by industry experts, and their instructors are accomplished professionals that are at the top of their fields and passionate about teaching. Linda's courses are high-quality video productions, and the videos are made in state-of-the-art studios. They use screenshots, narration, live action, smart Boards, charts, graphics, and audio. No homemade YouTube videos here. Lynda.com courses are convenient. You can take them anytime from your computer, your tablet, or your mobile device. Each Lynda.com course is structured so that you can learn from start to finish or just jump to in to find a quick answer. You can quickly search transcripts to easily find the information you're looking for. And for one low monthly price of $25, they give you un unlimited access to the entire course library. You can start improving your skills with a free seven-day trial, including unlimited access, at lynda.com slash twip. And you can show your support for This Week in Photo at lynda.com slash twip. We thank lynda.com for their support. Lynda.com, what do you want to learn today? Okay, guys, let's jump into this. So uh, I'm going to read this this blurb that uh, that Bruce um, put in the show notes for us. So he's been in here basically a few weeks ago at WWDC. That's Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. Apple announced Yosemite, their next major operating system update, along with this new OS. Apple released or revealed, they didn't release it yet, they revealed a new Photos application that will replace iPhoto. Well, now it looks like the new Photos app will also be doing the Pac-Man thing 
on Aperture as well. And Apple has announced this week that they're going to cease further development or continue to cease further development <laughs> on, on their photo management editing application that was popular with many uh, professional photographers. So the update will be released so that Aperture will run on Yosemite, but further development, like we said, is going to be discontinued, and they're going to provide upgrade paths for users who want to migrate their Aperture libraries over to the new Photos app and, you know, and the rest, we don't know, you know, so it's just kind of up in the air, which is the reason why we have this panel on the show. So let's kick it off with the Aperture expert himself, the man who runs the currently named ApertureExpert.com, <laughs> Joseph Linaski, you wrote an excellent blog post. In my opinion, this was a post that a this was a post that Apple should have written, right? So this was a calm yourselves down, people. The sky is not falling. It's all going to be okay post. And this is what photos means to you, Aperture users, and what it doesn't mean. Can you kick this discussion off with a demystification of what this demise of Aperture means. Are people's libraries suddenly going to vanish off the face of their hard drives, or what? Tell us you the real deal. I think so. The crux of it, no, your library is keep calm and carry on shooting moment. Aperture is going, as you said, is going to be uh, updated. There's going to be a minimum of a year and, what, three or four months of working with the current up-to-date operating system with Aperture being fully functional. At that point, even if you decided to do nothing and just keep moving with Aperture, that doesn't many, many years to come after that. You may not be able to upgrade to the latest operating system, but you would be able to keep on using it. So worst case scenario, do nothing, continue to use Aperture until whatever Mac you're running on goes up in a puff of smoke, which is going to be many, many years from now. So that's the first stop. So you know, no panic okay, necessary. Okay, but then, then, the, then the question... Then the question becomes, Joseph, yeah, that's great. They're, they're ceasing development on Aperture, but camera manufacturers will continue to release new cameras with their corresponding raw formats. Sure, the raw, raw support has always been supported by the operating system, okay. not by Aperture itself. So OS X continues to update its raw support because it needs that raw support for... Uh, well, for iPhoto currently, for the new Photos app, and even for Preview, or any, just in the Finder, when you hit the spacebar on a file and it opens up and you see it, if you're, it's a raw file, it's decoding that, and that's all handled by the operating system. Okay. So new camera buyers, no need to worry. That's all still going to be there. So then as far as what Photos is going to be, it's pretty clear that it's a totally new app. It's not likely to have all the features that we have come to know and love in version 1. It is likely to take some time before it matures into into an app that has the features that we have today and expect today, and then, of course, all the features that we want. So that may take some time. What that means, if it's another three months, six months, year, two years, nobody knows that. Uh, only Apple can answer that question. And the biggest, the easiest correlation is to look at the, the transition to Final Cut. When Final Cut went from Final Cut Pro 7 to Final Cut Pro 10, that was a major, major transition. And at first, Final Cut Pro 10 was not everything that Final Cut Pro 7 was. And unfortunately, back then, Apple handled that pretty poorly. The Basically, they launched Final Cut Pro 10 and said, all pros switched to this, and they stopped selling 7, and people freaked out because it didn't have the features they need. So this is being handled much better. It's a slow transition. You've got a minimum of a year and change to make the transition and really more than that if you need it. And you'll be able to continue using what you've got and when Photos is ready for your workflow, you'll be able to move into it. And that's essentially what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah, lot, lots of questions around that though. I mean, and Derek, I want to throw this to you and Don, I want to have you chime in as well. So on with, with the, this shift from Apple, 
um, a lot of folks are saying, and and Derek, I know you're you're uh, an authority on this as well. You've written several books on Aperture. You do Linda training on Aperture, and you're you've been waving the flag for years. So you, you know, if anybody's impacted by this, it's you. So <laughs> when you see when you see this, you got a lot of photos in there. <laughs> you got a lot of photos in there too. Does this does this mean is this is this Apple signaling the you know, sort of, okay, Adobe, re-surrender the pro market to you. You guys take it and run with it, and we're going to go after the consumer market. Well, I mean, I think that's a good question, and I think that's a fair question uh, mm -hmm. concerning the pro market. I think above that is that uh, this is a reboot of photography on the Apple platform. You mm -hmm. know, they wanted to do some stuff. They want, they want integration. So they want uh, iCloud and iOS and OS X to be seamless in terms of how these technologies work together. Mm -hmm. And my guess is what they did was uh, when they sat down and they looked at all the apps and they looked at uh, where they were going with OS X and iOS, they said, well, we could probably patch iPhoto and Aperture to some degree, or we could write a new app from the ground up. And uh, and just you know move forward that way and you know take the hit, and I and I think that's what they decided to do. And you know one of the things on the con list was you know uh, in, uh, serious enthusiasts and pros would would be upset by this move initially. As Joseph said, we'll see what happens two years up the road. But you know initially V1 is not going to be you know Aperture 3.5. Mm -hmm. So you know there's there's those guys are going to be upset about that. Yeah, yeah, but but you know when when I look at it from a consumer perspective, in that time since since the, the since the announcement dropped and Joseph, you wrote that blog post and all that, uh, you know, if I was even considering using Aperture, I wouldn't I wouldn't be buying it obviously, and I'd be looking for <laughs> you know I'd be looking for a life raft of okay, you know, Apple is not supporting this stuff anymore. They're not serious about pro photography. What else is out there? Obviously, all arrows are going to point to Lightroom. Are we going to just see a flood of Mac users just saying, you know what, Apple, you're doing that Final Cut thing again. You're doing that Motion thing again. You're doing that, you know, Soundtrack Pro thing again and abandoning software. I'm going over Adobe because they've been towing the line all along. I'm, you know, but is well, this the argument? There's there's one one point there. Um, they're they're changing software, but they're not abandoning the library. Now they rewrote the library structure uh, back a few versions ago, dot versions, uh, in, uh, intermediate versions ago, when they unified iPhoto and Aperture library. So that was kind of a first step. The library the library that we all have, or the libraries that we all have, will work moving forward. So, you know, the, the structure that you have, the metadata, uh, the image edits, all that stuff that's in there, that works moving forward into Yosemite and to the Photos app and all that. So what they're abandoning is, you know, is the, the shell app, not, not the, the core structure. So just to be clear on, on what, you know, what's happening with that. Now, second part of your question, yeah, a whole bunch of people are going to go to Lightroom <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of folks that they are just not going to wait for this to play out and they're going to move right now. And, um, I would say, and we'll we'll see what uh, Don has to say about this, but I would say if you're going to move to Lightroom, I would still wait because I would suspect that Adobe is trying to probably figure out 
some way to ease the migration from Aperture to Lightroom. And so I would kind of want to wait and see what that looked like because right now it's a real pain in the toe to do that. And, you know, hopefully Adobe can come up with something that's a bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, you know, not speaking with any any inside information, but if I was Adobe, I would be looking, you know, previous to this, I'm sure it was kind of a touchy subject. You don't want to, you know... Sure piss off the competition by making it really easy for their library to be read into yours. Now the competition is thrown in the flag, you know, (laughs) the white flag. So, okay, let's figure, let's, let's bring that library in. Don, Don, what about you? I know you're, you're on windows and I'm not sure what your post-processing workflow is. Have you, you know, and I know you haven't used aperture. So so you're, what do you think about this whole thing? Okay. Well, a few things. Uh, I am on Windows, and I use Lightroom and, and Photoshop sort of uh, concurrently. An image will always end up, uh, you know, round tripping at least once into Photoshop for whatever I need. But I'm worried because there's no competition now. There's no direct competition to Lightroom, so there's no reason for Adobe to uh, put a lot of money and engineering uh, efforts into making Lightroom even better. If they're at the top of the game and there's nothing nipping at their heels. Why are they going to, uh, you know, improve, and why are they going to need to, uh, you know, uh, revolutionize the, their processing structure and introduce new technologies if it doesn't make them any more money right. and it doesn't gain them any new audience? So uh, I'm kind of worried about that. And, and from, from my perspective, I mean, I've never used Aperture, and uh, I, I never intended on it. Um, I think that this will be something of an exodus. From uh, from Apple, you know, photographers. Not necessarily that they're gonna go out and buy a PC, but they're gonna look for other software. You know, it's weird though because Apple that just last year they announced uh, the new Mac Pros, and you can get a fully decked out Mac Pro for just almost ten thousand dollars. I mean, they have hardware there for the pros, uh, and they it just seems to be going in the opposite direction now that they're you know getting rid of any of the software that would also support that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense and it doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense from the standpoint of, hey, you you skate to where the puck's going to be, right? And the money is in the consumer space and they have more money, arguably, than any tech company on the planet, right? So clearly they're doing something right with the decisions that they're making. And like they showed with Final Cut, you know, they're not afraid to piss off a small minority of pro users, right, in to, to satisfy, if it means satisfying a gigantic, rabid, money-wielding crowd of consumers, who cares about the vocal pros over there, right? So, well, Joseph, we are the vocal pros. So, yeah. I mean, th- th- this is our soapbox, I suppose. And uh, yeah. and while we are not the uh, the majority, and there's a lot of people that this is going to upset, that clearly I can see the rage in many people's eyes right now. Yeah, yeah. Joseph, does this, does this open the window? Like, Don brought up, brought up a good point about competition, and that crossed my mind as well. Like, Adobe can clearly clearly ease off the gas now, right? Because there's nobody in their rear view. <laughs> so even if Aperture was on the horizon in their rear view, now there's nobody in their rear view. So does this open the door for some innovative company or third party to just, you know, not only build the, the migration software, which Adobe arguably should be doing, but to create a competitor to Lightroom and kind of build that Aperture five or six to compete directly with Lightroom. Sure. Yeah, sure. Why not? It certainly could happen. Uh, it, it's not like that kind of software gets developed overnight, though. But I think right. I think that the real competition for Adobe on that uh, in the Lightroom space isn't necessarily going to be, oh, it's, you know, there's nothing else out there. It's just uh, w- now we have to we get to wait until photos matures to that point. 
it's more the architecture of what photos is going to be built on. Yeah. So if we look at, <clears throat> excuse me, and some of this is, is speculation, but this is, is really kind of obvious speculation. If we look at iOS 8, iOS 8, the entire photo library structure is built off something called PhotoKit. PhotoKit is accessible by any third party as a what they call a first-class citizen now. Unlike in previous iOS versions where if you had, um, say, something like Snapseed, right, you would you had the access to pull a photo out of the photos library on iOS, do your work with it, and then send it back again. But if you wanted to maintain any type of editability, you had to keep it in your own space, in your own library. So with iOS 8 and PhotoKit, all of that changes. Every app has the same access to the photos library as Apple's own apps do. Now, if you take that onto OS 10, which is a clear, clear indication of where things are going, Photos app for OS 10 for, uh, for Yosemite is built into the OS level. It's a very, very deeply integrated piece of the puzzle. So suddenly what this opens up, and again, this is speculation, but the possibilities here of what this opens up is that now third-party apps, just like on iOS, can be built for OS 10 that access the photos at the operating system level. Photos.app, if you decide you don't like it, it doesn't have enough of a, enough features for you, whatever, anybody in theory should be able to make a program that they don't have to worry about the digital asset management part of it. They don't have to worry about content management. That is handled by Photos.app, and they can just on top of it. So that plugin slash app could be an entire editing suite. It could be anything. It could be anything from a 99-cent really cool curves tool that just gets plugged into it versus a $1,000 massive editing tool that nobody's ever dreamed of before. By taking away that whole file management part of it, it frees up the developers to work on the cool stuff and leave the, the, the hard work of the file management to Apple. Interesting. So this means so this that means that is where the real competition is going to hit. This this if what you say comes to fruition, and Derek, please jump in on this too. This means that Lightroom could arguably be looking at in a year, eighteen months or so, a completely radical rewrite to just look at that photo library that Apple has kind of laid out and put on a silver platter for them, right? They absolutely could do that, and then it goes beyond. Uh, I think Joe articulated that. Uh, Joseph articulated that really well. And then it goes beyond that. It's not just what sits on the Mac. It's also remember iPhoto for iOS is going away, also, and uh, and then you know they've wanted to to leverage iCloud in a more serious way for photographers. So in addition to everything that Joseph talked about, then uh, you're, you're also looking at integration on your iPad, your iPhone, and then uh, cloud storage. Mm -hmm. So this, this, gets, this gets big and interesting really fast. Yes, it does. And, and it, it be, it's becoming clearer. This conversation is making this become clearer. And, and Don, would you chime in on this next part? Because it's, you know, the one of the stories that we're going to be talking about or that we can talk about now actually is the fact that Google added non-destructive editing to Google Plus Photos now. So we're clearly seeing things move into the cloud. Google is ahead of the game there. I mean, they've been playing in the cloud forever and they acquired Nick and, you know, Snapseed and all that stuff and they've been doubling down on cloud-based processing. Is this where things are going now, Don? Do you see the arrow pointing in that direction where ultimately your library is going to live in the cloud? I think the foundation is certainly being built in that direction. And Google, like, like you said, they've been doing it for years. They've been gathering all these little pieces mm -hmm. uh, to some greater picture. And and I think that this non-destructive editing is going to be a big part of that. I think that they announced that their uh, the next Android operating system is going to allow for full raw support. And so that's another piece of the puzzle that's continuing. And these are all stepping stones that I don't know what 
Google is going to to create for photographers. I don't think it's there now, and and I think that moving it into the cloud is great for some people. Not great for me because of the volume of work that I do, yeah. uh, and and the fact that you know right now at least none of my cameras have an internet connection directly on them. Uh, when that happens, I mean, who knows what the technology uh, will be able to embrace with photography? It's a constantly flowing market, and and it's great that uh, you know Apple is by the sounds of it they're completely re envisioning things, and Google is stepping up to the plate as well, and. I, I, I'm kind of excited to see where the next five years in photography is going to be because nobody can really predict it at this point. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. So Derek, Derek and, and Joseph, this the piece that kind of, and this was a comment, what I'm about to say was a comment that was left on, I don't know, I think it was either your post or my reposting of your post, Joseph, or something. But somebody brought up the fact that, hey, I'm a pro user and I understand the logic behind this shift into cloud-based processing. However, comma, I shoot RAW, and how the heck am I going to get all my RAW files up in the cloud? I don't want all my RAW data in the cloud. You know, how do... How does that, how, what's that utopian future? I mean, are they thinking everyone's going to have, you know, 50 megabits up, you know, <laughs> down, up, upload speeds or what? Well, Derek, think... go ahead, you take it. Or Joseph, who are? <laughs> Joseph, <laughs> go, then I'll, 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 I'll chime in after you, Joseph. Cool. So, yeah, um, unless everybody's going to have, you know, gigabit connections and uh, unlimited free storage online, then clearly that's not going to happen. And this yeah. is, unfortunately one of the biggest bits of misinformation that's out there about this shift. Apple talks about iCloud storage. They demoed iCloud storage. They showed how cool it is that you'll be able to sync your photos across, make a change on your iPad, it shows up on your, you know, photos on your iPad, it shows up on photos on your desktop instantly. Wicked cool. Nowhere in there did Apple ever say you will be required to host your entire library in the cloud. Yet somehow the internet decided that that is what they said and somehow the internet decided that they're going to go on and on about how Apple doesn't get it, Apple's stupid, Apple doesn't care about pros, they don't understand that we have terabytes and terabytes of data. And it's quite frankly one of the most ludicrous things I've seen and I see it over and over again. So to any listener who is freaking out that they can't possibly upgrade their 10 terabyte library, their million photos up to the cloud, no one said you had to. It's just an option. It's an unbelievably cool option. I can't wait to have that capability, but I'm not in a position to be able to put my entire library on the cloud either. And it, nobody said I was going to have to. I'll put the pieces up there that I want to. Maybe my most recent libraries, who knows? You know, We don't know how that will be organized. Maybe you can say put my five stars up. We don't know yet. But clearly, clearly you do not have to put your entire library on the cloud. Yeah. Derek? Yes. So, you know, the, the, the basis for this technology is already there, and both Adobe and Apple use it. You have your raw file. And you know, and then the first thing that both Lightroom and Aperture do is they make a JPEG of it. It's your it's your working file, and as you as you make edits uh, to your image, uh, what both Adobe and Apple do is they read the raw file, they get the data, then they apply the uh, edit instructions that you make, and then they update the JPEG preview. That JPEG preview is uh, that is the the money that is exchanged across hands. And so anything that happens on the cloud uh, or uh, to your iOS devices or whatever is going to be based on your raw images, but it's not going to be the raw images. It's going to be these JPEGs that are handed around. They're super convenient. They're very high quality. 
every time you make an edit, uh, the application goes back, reads the raw file, makes uh, makes adjustments, and creates a new image. So this is what we're going to be able to hand around. We don't. I don't want to hand around raw files. Nobody does. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But I would love to have, you know, high quality, let's say, 2048 JPEGs uh, on any device I pick up. And I go, hey, you know, I need to do an Instagram post. Uh, I took a cool shot two weeks ago. Boom, there it is, and up it goes. And, you know, so it's going to be much more intelligent than a lot of the banter that we're hearing right now. So in just just so I understand how this might work, and again, you know, the the me mechanics of this are all speculative at this point, right? Aside from what Apple announced. So just to be clear about that, but could this could it could it possibly, based on what Joseph was saying and what he wrote, you know, this this being this photo kit type architecture on the Mac that kind of elevates the photos library to being a citizen that all applications can access could that theoretically mean that I can I could use photos if I wanted to and I could use the next lightroom in tandem and tell photos to hey take this folder and put just this folder or my five stars or whatever on all my devices but leave everything else alone and then I can use lightroom to manage the rest of my library is that theoretically possible in this upcoming world? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the thing that we're going to be doing, Joseph, me, and, you know, every other guy that makes a living doing what we do here is we're going to be figuring out all the workarounds, all the, you know, all the workflows, all the cool hacks. I mean, I would love to be the guy that comes up with something that's really neat, you know, around yeah. that. So I think there's there's going to be a lot of possibilities and it's going to, that's the fun part of it. You know, that's yeah. the part I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Well, let's let's shift the discussion a little bit to the cloud because we've been we've been talking about that and that's the common denominator between these three uh mega companies, Google, Apple, and Adobe, right? So we've seen I mean, on the Apple side, they've been trying for a while to to crack this cloud nut, right? And some would argue unsuccessfully, now more <laughs> successful than before. They're getting right. there, but they're clearly committed and putting resources against cracking the cloud nut. You know, on the Google side, by definition, they are the cloud. They're an internet company that exists in the cloud only, but they're making strides and focusing their efforts on Google Plus Photos and making that as awesome and auto-awesome as they can. Um, and then on the Adobe side, we see Creative Cloud, and the, just the recent announcement of Creative Cloud 2014, um, they're doubling down on the cloud as well. They just announced the uh, Lightroom mobile. It's now on the, the iOS devices, both the phone and tablets, and you can store your stuff in the cloud, you know, and share it to different people. All the stuff is going on. The common denominator that I see across all these companies is the cloud, you know, is, is that the next frontier? And so it's like the cloud and mobile are primary with desktop just sort of fading into the distance. Is that what you guys are seeing or am I reading it wrong? Well, I, I, I think, I think they're all hooked together. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I think mobile is, is at the top of the list, mobility. And I think the cloud is a means to do that. Uh, I don't think the cloud is, you know, the end end all there. I think it's a way to enable that mm -hmm. uh, sort of thing. Lightroom Mobile that you mentioned is cool. I mean, I mean, I'm using it right now, and uh, I like it. 
and uh, you know they just added star ratings and you know they're doing little goodies along the way and, and I think it's it's going to continue to get better so yeah I think they're all they're all trying to figure out what the secret formula is here you know the mix of cloud and mobility but I think mobility is for me anyway mobility is at the top of the heap and then and the desktop's not going away we you know even you need a space station, right? So right. you need right. something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need a ba you need a base to return to every you now. You do, and then. you do. You need a harbor, whatever metaphor we want to use there. Right, right. Joseph, you have anything to add to that? Well, that's the key, though. That's not everybody does, right? And it's the the pros do. The high end photographers do need that base, whatever it is, back at home, back in the studio. But your average consumer does not. Your average consumer can do just fine with an iPad or a small laptop, but you know, let's just go totally mobile. It's iPad. You've got a digital camera and an iPad. You've got the ability to pull your photos over, edit. The average consumer doesn't need access to the raw file. They don't need all that power. They just want to take the JPEG, make, it, make some changes, put a cool filter, crop it, add it to a photo album, add it to their Facebook library, Instagram, whatever. And that's perfectly enough for the vast majority of users. So it, you... you don't necessarily need that big power, but those of us that do, of course, you know, we're we'll always right. be there. But it's less and less important than it used to be. Don, is this is this stuff important? I mean, where where does what's your flow? I mean, when you talk about mobile, cloud, desktop, which do you care about least, and which is most? Well, I want to echo uh, both Joseph and uh, and and Derek's uh, statements about the vast majority of um, of people that are embracing this mobile technology. They are the consumers. They are the people that are not professionals that might not even call themselves photographers, uh, but they like to take pictures with their devices, share them, edit them, post them around. Uh, and, and I think that all of these companies are trying to cater to that vast majority and make that a better experience. Some of those uh, conveniences, if they can trickle down to a professional's workflow and, and improve uh, your ability to access your images from anywhere at any time, uh, in some of the ways that Derek was explaining, that's fantastic. But I don't know if that's going to be a uh, you know a world-changing uh, piece of technology for a lot of photographers. It might help and it might enhance things, but I don't think that it's going to revolutionize anything. It will revolutionize the consumer space where people can uh, take pictures with uh, any uh, Wi-Fi connected point-and-shoot camera, cell phone, uh, mirrorless camera, and have just the images without massive amounts of raw data and have that on every device, editing uh, in any way that they want and shared in any way that they want. And that's becoming uh, something of a singularity where uh, as soon as you can pick up any device and have all of your pictures, regardless of who it's from, uh, then I think that we're you know, in a different world of photography and, and really uh, a different world of communication. Yeah, you know the other the other thing I worry about is um, just the privacy. You know, so once once you start relying on the cloud, oh, there's two things: is privacy and reliability. Because if you you know you're living off the cloud and that is your primary mode of connecting to your library and all this other stuff, and you now don't have internet access for some reason, yeah, of course you're going to have cast copies, but still you're going to have diminished. Uh, access. There's that piece of it, and then the other piece of it is, you know, the the tinfoil hat people are going to say, hey, I don't want all my data in the cloud. You know, like in the case of Google, if I put all my photos on Google, they're going to do image recognition and facial recognition on my photos and submit me ad or serve me ads based on the photos content. You know, <laughs> so I think it's almost, I was go, go ahead, go ahead, say, Don. 
it's almost impossible to consider anything private these days. It's it's one of those things that I, I, I wish we could have privacy online, but I don't think we could sort of live our lives expecting it anymore these days. Right. That's sad. That's a little scary. That's it is. Little... If you want privacy, stay offline. Yeah. I don't think that'll help. <laughs> because as we talked about in a previous twip, people can take photos of you from the street inside your house and do gallery ex exhibitions and be okay with it. <laughs> I don't know, Derek. What do you think about the cloud privacy piece of it? Oh, that you know that ship has sailed long time ago. I mean, <laughs> I know people don't even realize. You go onto any website and you've got you know you got 18 different uh, spiders crawling all over you at any given moment. You know, it, yeah. it's there is there is no privacy if you're if you're online if you're using any of this, and um, you know that's that's just the way it is. We'll have to see how it shakes out. I'm more concerned about what you were talking about earlier, which is reliability, mm -hmm. because that that is a real issue uh, for me. Uh, you know, I travel a lot, and you know, I still have the same work to do every day, regardless if I'm here in my studio or if I'm in London. And uh, you know, having having uh, that reliability problem is, I you know, that's what drives me nuts, and that's the part I hate about the cloud. So. I, I was just testing a new app today called Shutter for uh, iOS, mm. and they do they do one clever thing. You know, everything gets automatically backed up. You have unlimited cloud storage, but they keep the last 200 photos that you take with it, uh, you know, on on your device. They keep it local, so there's always, you know, and they know they know that you know we run into reliability issues, you know. Yeah. So that's the part I hate. Uh, privacy. <laughs> <laughs> forget about it. You're like, forget about it. Go forget on. about it, man. It's just, <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> All right. Well, we beat this to death a little bit, I think. Um, it's, obviously, the story is going to continue to unfold um, as the features that are going to be in Photos app reveal themselves. Any any final words on the Aperture sort of uh, news there, Joseph? You know, and and piggyback on that. When can we expect some training from you on <laughs> your site on all of this stuff and migratory paths and all this? Sure, sure. Well, the the primary takeaway for the whole Aperture thing is what I opened it with. You know, keep calm and carry on shooting. It's yeah. it's not the end of the world. Um, transitions take time, and just because Apple announced that it wasn't going to be developed anymore doesn't mean that you all have to run out and switch over to something tomorrow. So right. take your time, figure out what you want to do. Nothing's been taken away from you. So yeah. there's that part of it. As far as transitions, I mean, ApertureExpert.com clearly needs to be rethought, rethunk, rebranded, redone. And I've got lots of ideas of what that's going to be. I haven't made any final, decision, final decisions yet, but I have registered at least a dozen new URLs for possible new business ventures with it. But it will be continue to be at its core what it always has been, whether it supports... Uh, just photos or it goes a little bigger than that remains to be seen and the next major step for Aperture Expert is clearly going to be to help Aperture users do whatever it is they need to do. You know, I'm not going to sit there and say don't go to Lightroom, don't go to Lightroom because obviously for a lot of photographers that is the logical and the correct choice to make and yeah. they're going to make it so we're going to have to help them out with that so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we will work on a strategy, work on a workflow that people can follow to get their pictures over to Aperture, uh, over to Lightroom as cleanly as possible. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pretty, but we're going to put some real time and effort into figuring out what the best way to do that is, and publish that as ebooks, videos, whatever it may be, and get that information out there. 
I love it. I love it. Yeah, the the metaphor is, you know, today's big news about uh, General Motors, you know, recalling what, 28 million vehicles or something unprecedented like that. This is not that, right? So it's not like, you know, <laughs> apertures being recalled and you're left high and dry with your libraries. You can still drive your car, people. You know, it's okay. <laughs> so, well, it's not only in the big picture, not only is it not that, it's not even Final Cut 10. You know, it's, oh, it's, yeah. and and I think and I think that you know what ha that mishandling of Final Cut 10 and boy was it mishandled. Yeah. I think that is is has a lot to do with what people are are feeling right now. Yeah. Any so Derek, I'll put the same question to you. Um, final thoughts on the aperture thing and. Uh, like I said at the beginning, you've got Linda titles out there. You've got books out there that you've committed a sizable amount of time training people on Aperture. When can we expect some photos app? I mean, obviously, when the photos app hits, you can do that. But anything in the interim right. on massaging the transition and all that? Well, I mean, it's it's so funny. The morning before all of this happened, I I woke up at 5 in the morning and said, I need to talk to Linda about photos you know, and uh, and Yosemite, because I, I just feel like we're going to have to start working on that soon. And uh, literally two hours later, I get a call from Apple PR about the Aperture thing. So, yeah, uh, yeah so we, we already put, you know, the wheels are already in motion. I think what what Linda and Joseph and everyone else needs to figure out is, you know, what's the, what's the best way to, to proceed, you know, in terms of that. But, yeah. I mean, this is. I'm going to be busy. Joseph's going to be busy. A lot of us going to be busy over the next year. And you know, in all honesty, that's not such a terrible thing. No, that's a great thing. I mean, yeah. you know, now you know, no more grasping for straws and crumbs, worrying about the aperture release. Now there's at least a line in the sand that something cool is coming, and you can start thinking and. Yeah, I mean, you said it yourself at the top of the show. You know, aperture. They just officially said that they were going to stop updating aperture. <laughs> it's unofficially been going on for a long time. I know. Yeah, I'm just sad because I can't tease you guys anymore, man. I mean, uh, there'll be something new. There'll be something. You'll find something. Oh, yes, I will. Yes, I will. All right, guys, let's move on to story number three. Um, this is about Nikon. So a Nikon announced the D18 in this new camera. This is sort of follow-up to its megapixel beast, the D800. Um, it's got a brand-new 36.3 megapixel FX format, and that's 7,360 by 4912 resolution on a CMOS Ooh. sensor. Um, which is just, I can't get my brain around those numbers. Uh, no optical low-pass filter, improved image detail and dynamic range, new highlight-weighted metering to help prevent blown-out highlights. It's got HDMI output for video, allowing for uncompressed video to be recorded on an external recorder. No word about 4K. Um, but And it's got a street price of $3,300. Don Komaretska, I know you might be looking at this camera. I don't know. You're a Canon guy. But what, what do you think about these specs? Does this make you want to jump? Well, you see, I'm a Canon guy, but Canon hasn't been getting any love in the high megapixel market. I mean, this is Nikon's uh, second generation 36 megapixel digital SLR, and Canon has nothing that can really compete. And it's yeah. interesting to see how they're, uh, they're, they're pushing things forward. Uh, the no um, optical low-pass filter is interesting. I was digging through a box of stuff that I have here, and uh, for those that, that, that are uh, watching the video, if not, I'll describe it audibly. Um, this is a sensor from a Nikon D4. And uh, so if, if you take this apart, there's, uh, there's one piece of glass, uh, and then 
you take some other pieces apart, Jeez. and there's another piece of glass, and you take something else apart, and on the sensor itself, there's another piece of glass. Uh, so there's three pieces of glass inside of a sensor, and, and I'm sure that that creates some uh, optical muck along the way, no matter how well engineered it is. So removing that and, and what it represents, you know, the... Um, uh, uh, the anti-aliasing filters and all of that kind of stuff too will, you know, conceivably produce a sharper image, and uh, and you might get some interesting results from that. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's going to be uh, revolutionary. It's not going to change the world, but it you know it could offer some advantage to those photographers that really want to get the most out of every pixel that's there. Yeah. Uh, one interesting point to mention, and I I can't figure this out though. I was looking through all the specs changes, you know, the differences between the D800 and the D810, and a lot of it seems software-based. Um, like uh, they have the exact same metering hardware, but they're introducing new metering modes. And uh, like the intervalometer has been increased from 999 exposures to uh, you know uh, adding an extra digit to 9,999. And I'm thinking these kinds of things. These are firmware updates. That's is code. This, yeah. it, it, this is code. This is really going to annoy the D800 owners out there that have all this hardware that can't use any of these features, even though it's fully possible, just Nikon de decided not to include it in the older version. So we'll yeah. see how that shakes out. Oh, can you imagine that? Yeah, I could see the, you know, some boss over at Nikon saying, you know what, you have X dollars to make this next version better, make it stretch. I want some bullet points on that spec sheet. <laughs> make, I don't care how you do it, but make it happen with $10,000 all you got. I don't know. Joseph, you know, you saw the specs on this thing, and I know you've been playing around with that GH4, you know, and you used to shoot big cameras. You, what what did you think of this? Was it exciting, or were you like, meh? Meh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... You know, it's easy to get all caught up in the megapixels, and the megapixel wars we thought were over, and and then you know Nikon went and stoked the fire again with that. Yeah. Um, cameras like the GH4, and granted it's a smaller sensor, but that is a 16 megapixel file that you get out of that, not a 36 megapixel file. So that's a massive difference. Yeah. Uh, 36 megapixels. You know, I, I would never say, oh, it's too many pixels. You know, what are you going to do with that? Because clearly there's a, a time and a space for it. In my mind, if I'm going to shoot something that's that many megapixels, then I probably want to go medium format. I don't really have an interest in trying to cram that many megapixels into a full-frame sensor. It's just a lot. Now, I'm saying that I haven't shot with it, uh, so maybe I would be blown away with it, but I'm certainly not about to go out and invest any real time and energy into it. I'm loving what I've got now. That camera, I would imagine, weighs a little bit more than the GH4. That's one of the reasons I started going that route was to get that nice lightweight kit. And Derek, that's your fault. You're the one who turned me on to this whole micro four thirds thing. I know. It's so um, cool. I, I love seeing this that you're going I know. with the oh, GH4. Yeah. I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic. Yeah. Setup. I mean, and so so it's yeah. Derek. It's your fault. I mean, because mm -hmm. Joseph kind of influenced me to move into micro four thirds. So it's kind of your fault that I'm <laughs> that I moved to micro four thirds. So thank you, Father Derek. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, spouses hate me <laughs> for this very reason. <laughs> So what did you think? Of, you saw the you saw the specs of this thing. You know, ordinarily yeah. back when I was you know using Nikon and and you know actively shooting, I would have been you know pouring over that website and yeah. you know my pupils would have changed to hearts and I would have been crunching numbers to see if, <laughs> how can I make it happen. Now I saw that I haven't even read the yeah. you know I haven't gone to the site yet. I'm like okay you know yeah. I'll go check it out later. I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's it's the big hammer, right? So, uh, I think Don was sort of alluding to this. Well, is that, you know, it when you need it, 
when you need this camera for a particular type of work that you're doing or a particular job, then it's great, right? And, and I think this, is, this camera is going to do that, that high-end work very well. I guess the way that they're also going to solve the Moray uh, pattern is through software, too. They're going to, you know, the... They're not offering, you know, anti-alias and non-anti-alias filter models. They're just going to go without it, and then uh, get rid of the more through software. That's what I'm reading. Uh, I don't, I haven't seen that yet. So I, I think it's a cool camera if you need it. Uh, if you don't need it, you know, it's it's expensive and it's very big. And I was just thinking the other day, uh, you know, I still have about six jobs a year where I need my heavy-duty big DSLRs and I'm really glad I have them then and the rest of the time you know you guys are shooting the Panasonic I'm shooting the Olympus mm -hmm. and uh, I'm just loving it I mean I, I went all through Europe with the EM10 yeah. I love my pictures I love my pictures and I had a great time you know so so you know it's, it's the right tool for the job and for some jobs that new Nikon is going to be the right tool yeah you know like landscape shooters you know I was talking to uh, Karen Hutton and she, you know, obviously is a, a big landscape shooter, and you know she needs she needs those pixels because she's yeah. she's printing gigantic, ginormous prints that you need to resolve the detail down to the ant, you know, from, from with a wide angle lens. So she needs that, you know, and it yeah. makes sense for the Karens. And what I told Karen was, you know, camera manufacturers like Nikon love her, and they wish we will were all her. But unfortunately, we're not all her. No, <laughs> you know? no. We're 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 okay with not seeing that ant, you know, at you know life size from a mile away. So. Well, you know, I, I it's funny. I was listening to Don. You know, I'm a Canon shooter too, and I haven't upgraded from the 5D Mark II for my full frame sensor. Yeah. Uh, because I haven't had to. It. I mean, it, that camera is still doing what I need it to do for what I need. But I need a full frame sensor. So uh, they I, they probably don't like me either because I'm going. I'm fine. You know, I've got glass. I've got a nice sensor. You know, I'm I'm sitting pretty when I need that camera. Yeah, yeah. Derek, what is it you need the full frame sensor for on those few jobs? Uh, I still do some commercial work that ends up on billboards and things like that. So on on those shoots, I I feel may, and maybe it's just a safety net thing. I just feel more comfortable using the full frame sensor with a few more pixels and I don't know I, I still trust that dynamic range uh, although the dynamic range on my uh, micro four thirds has been amazing lately yeah. but uh, yeah it's the stuff that goes big yeah and you yeah. know and the other thing too when um, when you and this is so silly but it's still a little bit true when you're getting paid let's say let's say ten thousand dollars for a shoot right yeah. You know, and, and you show up and you got the art director there and everything. I'm still not comfortable showing up with a micro four thirds. You know, I still feel like I need to show up with a big camera, yeah. uh, at least until the check clears. Yeah, that's what I keep telling. I think it's a twip listeners. Here's a business idea for you. You know how they have underwater housings? <laughs> Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Just I know where you're going. this crazy-looking DSLR housing for your Micro Four Thirds camera, and you're good. You know. I love it. I love it. I'll be first in line. Kickstarter. <laughs> exactly. That's a million-dollar idea. You can walk around looking like you know a real photographer. With That's your, what your I need. That's what I need. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right, guys. Let's uh, let's jump into the listener Q and A. This is the segment where our listeners get to pose a question and we answer it. Um, this week's question comes from Ron Stevenson via our Google Plus community page. He says, "I'm considering purchasing a mirrorless camera kit, selling for under one thousand dollars. Would appreciate any suggestions." Derek, what do you think? Under under a grand, what can uh, what can Ron? get into. Yeah, this is, this is good. We got a good panel for this because we'll get a couple different recommendations. The one that I'm going to go with right now I, that I feel really good about is the uh, Olympus OMD EM10. Yeah. That kit is $799 with the lens and um, you still got a little bit of money left over to get a 45 F1.8 or something, you know, fun there. Yeah. So the, that's what I would go with right now. And the EM10. Yeah, I think I'd probably agree with you. I'd say either that one or the the Panasonic GM1. You know, it's the the little one, but it depends on what he's using. The other piece of this, what are you using the camera for? So there's yeah. lots of different sizes. You get the electronic viewfinder, you know, with the EM10. That you know, yeah. that's really nice. Yeah, and does the EM10 have that five-axis image stabilization? Three. Only three axis, okay. That's three cool. axis, yeah. But <laughs> only but you three. Get... Listen to us. Only yeah, three. Navigan. <laughs> it doesn't stabilize the time dimension, you know. <laughs> but you, yeah, that's right. Uh, and the only place that you really notice it is for macro work. You know, it, you know that in and out is where uh, it gives up. But you gain a pop-up flash, which you haven't had on the OMDs uh, prior. So, you know, cool. a, but the, you know, the one thing I will say, and I think, uh, I know Frederick, you probably go along with it, whatever you get, make sure it has a good Wi-Fi built in and, uh, and a companion app because that just changes everything in terms totally. of, uh, on the go workflow. Totally. Yeah. And you, you kicked me over the edge on that. Remember that time we met in San Francisco and mm. you were, you, we were, I think it was your iPad for photographer's book we were yeah. talking about. And yeah. uh, you were demonstrating the wireless workflow. And I was like, it's that easy? And since then, it's become part of my regular sort of MO. You know, shoot, find it, put it on the phone, and send uh, it out after some editing. You know? It's so really. fun. <laughs> yeah. it's, I'm, I'm addicted. I'm addicted. Yeah. Don, what about you? You have any thoughts on that, on the sub $1,000 mirrorless? I've yet to dive into the market myself, but I've got my hands on quite a few of them. And uh, one that, that I really quite liked was the Sony Alpha 6000, which again clocks in at pretty much the exact same price that Derek was saying, about $800 with the kit lens. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the room if you want to buy a second lens or any extra accessories to fully you know, kit yourself out. And uh, it's it's not the Micro Four Thirds. It's uh, Sony's um, E-mount lenses, and it's a, an EPS-C-sized sensor, so it's slightly bigger. Uh, not sure if that's an advantage. The camera is still physically about the same size, I think. Um, and uh, you know, I've I've heard nothing but great things. My hands-on experience, however brief it was, was pretty fantastic as well. So I'd I'd consider that one. Yeah, I a great great point. A couple of people on the workshop, Valerie's workshop in Paris, had the A6000, and they were like. And they had just gotten them because, it, you know, it, it's a relatively new camera. And they were over the moon. They were just blown yeah. away at the quality. I mean, they were like, it's hard to not nail a shot with this thing. They are like walking around with it one hand like, oh, people having toast. Click. And they get it, you know. <laughs> Firing the, the frame per second rate of that thing is like a machine gun on caffeine. It's just... 
it, it, in every shot is sharp. It's just amazing. It's an amazing little under-marketed and undersold camera, I think. So, and we did a uh, a review of that camera on the All About the Gear show. Doug K and I did a review of it. Actually, Doug did the review, and I asked him questions about it. So, check out check out this week in photo. Just do a search for a six thousand, and you'll uh, you'll find that review. It's a video review. Joseph, what about you? What do you think? What's a what's a good sub one K camera? GM one you mentioned is great, but like Derek said, it doesn't have the electronic viewfinder. So if you want right. that, um, what I would say is go for the GX7. Mm. That's the also Lumix camera, the GX7, and that's the same price point. It's about a thousand dollars with a kit lens, Ooh. and that's a uh, it's a nice little zoom, and that is a really really great camera. There we go. Hold that baby up. There's a yeah, GX7. That is a there. wonderful piece of kit. I love this and. Um, for those watching, show the pop-up, the tiltable viewfinder. Oh, oh yeah. So viewfinder, tiltable viewfinder. Oh, the tultable viewfinder. There's the LCD, and there's the yeah. viewfinder like that. Look at that. Super cool. Look at that. Yeah, and so a pop-up flash. Hold the camera. Woo! Look at that. Level, but it looks straight down into it. It's a very cool little camera. Great Wi-Fi control. Uh, same thing that Derek was talking about. You can control that thing from your iPad. Trigger it. Uh, It'll change the exposure or whatever. Look through the viewfinder from your iPad. It's incredible. So that would be my $1,000 Micro Four Thirds kit of choice. I love it. The price on that one came down, so it came down into that to the range there because it was uh, it was a more expensive camera and is an excellent camera. As and I have to agree with the A6000 too. I mean, these cameras that we're talking about right now, you know, I would say. This is this is what photography is about right now. These are these are amazing tools. Yeah, yeah, and it's only getting better. I mean, we've got amazing tools on the capture side, and like we kicked the show off with, it's we're not seeing stagnation. Well, not anymore on the post processing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to hold back. I'm trying. <laughs> on the the post-processing and digital asset management side, there's movement there now as well. There's life. There's life. So I'm happy. Yeah, we're, we're doing good. I think it's a good time to be a photographer. All right, guys, let's let's jump into the pick of the week segment. This is uh, this is the part where you guys get to mention something, uh, recommend something something to the This Week in Photo audience. Derek Story, I'm going to let you go first. What's your pick of the week? Um, I'm going to pick my little red Me Photo Day Trip tripod that I was yes. carrying in Europe. I have I that. Have... That's what I brought to Europe too. I love ah, it. So it was so nice. It, it fit in my uh, messenger bag. Uh, it, it, the one thing you have to caution people is that it only goes up about two and a half feet. You know, I, I have the, the small one, about two and a half feet, but I never had a problem with it. I, you know, I always found something to use it, you know, to put it on and it is so rock solid. It's light. Uh, it's got a mini Arca Swiss head. It's a good little, uh, kit and it's, and it's not that bad. It was what, I think a hundred and. I want to say 49 or something. Yeah, I think 60. that's what I, I I think I picked it up the at head. Yeah, and I paid the show price for it. It was something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a it's a terrific. You know, people leave tripods at home because they're too big and too heavy. Uh, this one you can take with you. It's quality and, and it's it's very solid. Yeah, that's a good point because there were we were. You know, in in Paris, roaming around at night, getting night shots and doing long exposures and that sort of thing. And you know, a couple of people forgot their tripods or didn't bring them. In fact, one lady said that, you know, I thought about bringing my tripod, but I brought extra shoes instead. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> 
So she she like put the camera on the shoe. Is that is that, how does that work? But I mean, she's an awesome photographer. But and then she was regretting it because you know we were doing so much walking. She only ended up using her comfortable shoes the entire time. So you know those shoes just got a free trip across the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, you know the it's funny. The very first serious shot I took with that me photo was uh, in San Francisco at Pier 14 of the the Bay Bridge and everything. Yeah. And I and I put it on um you know put it on Flickr and it blew up on Explore and just had. You know, it just went crazy. I had a, a great, and I go, this is the way you start out a relationship with a tripod. You know, <laughs> this is, so. that just means it's all downhill from there, Derek. You can't start oh, out on oh. a high note. <laughs> <laughs> Set the bar too high, man. You got to, uh, you know, start with dinner or something. Come on. <laughs> awesome. All right, Derek. Thanks for that. That's the me photo. What was that? The me photo day trip? The day trip. So it's a little. If you need one a little bit bigger, they have. Uh, they the have. Two, I think I have the road trip. The road, the road trip is the yeah. next size up. Yeah. 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 And that one, it's in front of me. It goes up to. You have to look at the specs on the page, but it's got to go up to at least five feet or something like yeah, that. Yeah. That one goes up a, a a bigger notch. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I would the detractor that I found that came into stark contrast in Paris was. There t- on this particular, the one I'm pointing at, the date, the road trip, too many segments in the legs, too many, because there's like one, two, four, four little things that you have to undo to extend the leg, you know, and that's so that's twelve, you know, that you have to do just to get your tripod at its full full height, and you know, doing that a couple hundred times was old. You know, I was looking, I was wishing for the little latch. Remember the the tripods that have yeah, the latch yeah, to release yeah. the legs. That's what I need, you know. Well, so. I have a very dramatic way to do that. Now, mine doesn't have as many, but on the do, what I do is I loosen them all up while it's upside down, and yeah. then I dramatically turn it, and they frump, and they all go <laughs> out, and then I just tighten them all down. Nice. So it's a, it's a little showmanship too. Maybe yeah. you should do a YouTube video on that. <laughs> that feels like a YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> well, Emergency tripod that. deployment by Director. <laughs> All right, we'll cool I'll things there. Don Komaretska, what's your pick? Put the tripod, put it away. Don't tighten up the legs. Oh. Just open them, oh. and it'll collapse it, and then stick it in the bag. You don't need to retighten them. And then when you take it out of the bag, they're already loose. Hmm. Shake and lock. But see, that, I don't know if that'd work for me, uh, Joseph, because I'm anal retentive. So I would have to make <laughs> sure they're all. They all have to be perfect and aligned correctly before I stow it. It's military. Come on. Frederick's like tossing and turning in bed. Oh, God. Should I just get up and tighten them? <laughs> There's one segment that's not tight. I know. I know. <laughs> hey, you laugh, you know. You know, sickness is nothing to laugh at. Come on. <laughs> All right. Don, what do you got for us? What's your pick of the week? Well, it's uh, something of a household item that I've repurposed for photography on a number of occasions. Uh, I was out uh, teaching a macro photography workshop last weekend, and uh, it was an invaluable piece of my kit. It happens to be your just standard black umbrella. Ooh. And uh, so, I mean, you know, something you should keep in your car all the time just in case it rains. But uh, fully extended, that becomes on a macro scale when you're photographing wildflowers or anything close to the ground, it becomes a great light diffuser. And it all actually blocks a lot of the uh, the light if you're trying to use flash and be creative in that way. Um, you know, you can go and buy photographic quality um, diffusers and, and, and light blockers and reflectors and all that kind of stuff. And then you have to worry about unfolding them and getting a stand. And the umbrella, just get one with a long 
long handle and it makes itself its own stand. And so it's very convenient uh, and far less expensive than any alternatives. Uh, if you want just soft light, a white umbrella. If you want to play with flash, a black one, and you're all set. And where'd you, where did you pick that thing up from? Amazon? Uh, well, I mean, just you know, any hardware store or pharmacy oh, so this is or a anything. Standard one. This, this is, is just a standard. This is an, an umbrella. Uh, nothing fancy about it. It's just either black or white, so that you have neutral colors. Nice. Very cool. All right. Good tip. There you go. And that's that's a little cheaper than Derek. So see if Joseph can you beat that. <laughs> Everyone's always cheaper than mine. <laughs> not on the not on the cheaper. I'm going to go the other direction. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> So we talked about the G4, somebody's pick of the week. So I'm not going to pick the camera, but I'm going to pick a lens to go along with it. And that is the new Lumix uh, 12 to 35 millimeter f2.8 lens. So on a micro four thirds, you double it. So that's a, your standard 24 to 70 f2.8. And that lens is sharp. Yes, it's crazy that sharp. Very, Derek, that's the lens nice. I shot the Eiffel I'm Tower. Not, it is. Yeah, I have that lens too. I, yeah, I use that go. lens also. Yeah, I'm not normally a huge fan of zooms. Yeah, I love a bag full of small primes, and you know, you all know how small those primes are for the micro four thirds. But so this one is a little bit bigger, being an f two eight and that full range. But man, that is a sweet lens. It is really, really nice. So deep piece of kit, but it's beautiful. It is. It is very beautiful. And I'm gonna. I'm going to piggyback on that. I'm going to go down the lens route. Uh, I brought this thing to Paris with me as well. It's the Rokinon 7.5 millimeter, um, what is it, F3.5 fisheye lens. Yeah, Derek, have you seen this? That. Yeah, no, you and I talked mm. about that. Yeah. Yes, and I, I think I got this because of you, actually. Yeah, you did. Yeah, that was fun. And so now it's my pick of the week. This thing is just insane. I mean, I forget no, how much it was. It, it's cheap, right? It's like 50 bu 50 bucks or something, yeah, but it's real it's relatively cheap, but sharp no. as all get out. It's tiny. Seven go, go on Amazon. I got it off of Amazon. It's um, like 249, isn't it? Is, something like is that. Is it 249? Maybe it yeah, is. I think you know, money's no object, whatever. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> comparatively <laughs> speaking to the other fish eyes out there, it was counting. this lens is insane. Who's counting? You know, you know, it's a rounding error. Um, but you know, I took this thing to Paris and I was doing all kinds of just weird shots and you know, lay, because it's a Micro Four Thirds camera and it's relatively little, you lay the camera on the ground, you know, and I would have the crowd of people sort of hover over the lens with yeah, the, those, under those the Eiffel Tower, you know, so you get that kind of shot. It's just you get so many cool things you can do with this. I was even shooting 4K video with this thing, which is. Also very fun. So all kinds of stuff that you can do. So yeah, definitely check it out. It's the Rokinon uh, uh, 7.5 millimeter f3.5 fisheye for Micro Four Thirds, and it's how much, guys? It's 250 bucks. I see it on sale for 249 a lot. If you if you hang out and if you're not in a hurry, I see it on sale a lot. Yeah, yeah. And for a similarly priced or similar fisheye focal length, Derek, on a full frame DSLR, what are you looking at? Uh, I just more. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say add another another decimal point in there. For well, Canon, it would be fifteen. Too. For Nikon, it would be sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. 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 A lot exactly. of money. So two hundred fifty bucks for this is like next to nothing. So. But you know, just uh, to pile on to what you're saying, you know, I took a I took a fisheye too. Uh, you know, and I love fisheyes when I'm traveling because. 
you know, you're doing all this stuff. I mean, I, I want to do something different all the time. And, you yeah. know, and you have a little bit more time when you're traveling, right? You're, you're, you're hanging out in train stations or whatever. I don't know. Fisheye is just, every time I pull out the fisheye, it would just shake things up and it just get me going, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I really like that about them. Yeah. The danger of the fisheye is it's easy to miss shots because you're shooting with the fisheye all the time. And then you get home and you're like, why are all my shots fisheye shots? <laughs> How come I did not take the lens off and get it's regular shots? It's changeable lens, Frederick. <laughs> I know. Remember I told you, you know, I, I'm, I have yeah, this focus. I know, I know. Maybe she get a second body with uh, just a fisheye on it. Yes, yes. But then that's more weight and, you know, yeah, defeats the purpose. Know. Like Joseph said, it's all about the weight. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys, uh, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks to all of you for coming on, and thanks to lynda.com for their support of this episode of This Week in Photo. In this episode, at the end of this episode, there's an interview that I did with my good buddy, Mr. Ralph Velasco. He's, this is his second time on This Week in Photo, and he did a... Uh, we were essentially talking about some very specific and succinct tips for photographers when they travel, Derek, right? So when you're popping around... Yeah. How do you prepare? How do you research? What do you bring with you? What don't you bring with you? All that stuff. So we covered all that in this interview. So hang around after the ending music to uh, listen to that interview with Mr. Ralph Velasco. Derek Story, where can people go to see your tutorials on Aperture and photos and all that cool stuff? Everything, everything goes through <laughs> thedigitalstory.com, including my Aperture and iPhoto content, which will still be useful for years to come. Yes, it will. It will. It you know, will much yeah. much like my shelf of Nikon gear here. You know, it's a little dusty, but <laughs> I still have it. Just in case I need it, I have it. Just in case. Just in case. Awesome. Well, Derek, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure yeah. to have you. And Mr. Don Komarechka, where are you at online? Well, uh, I'm most active on Google+, so take a look for me there, and you'll find the links to that. And everywhere else, I am online at uh, doncom.ca. Excellent. And thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. And last but not least, the Aperture expert himself, my good buddy, Mr. Joseph Lenaski, who has learned his lesson not to brand himself with another company's brand. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Joseph. <laughs> no, I don't know if I'm... <laughs> Where where can people go to keep up with you? So uh, <laughs> check out the other company's brand, uh, ApertureExpert.com. Soon to be something else. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what yet, but we're working on that. Or of course, there's PhotoJoseph.com for the world of photography. <laughs> Excellent, and thank you for coming on. Always good to have you on. You know, I'm, I have a feeling you're going to be on a lot in the next couple of years as all these changes roll out to photos and all this. Yeah, stuff. works for me. So, looking forward to it. Cool. All right, listeners, be sure to check out our website over at thisweekinphoto.com, or if you want to connect with me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Weekend Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.
All right. I'm here with a friend of mine, Mr. Ralph Velasco. He's a travel photographer, and he's one of those photographers that just, you know, is kind of, uh, we can live vicariously through, vicariously through Ralph, because he's just bouncing all over the place. We were talking before I clicked the record button, and I wrote down, he was just rattling off the places that he's been within just the last couple of months, the last three months. Been on seven trips. He's been to Turkey, Tuscany. Uh, all over Europe, been to Morocco, Iceland, and a bunch of other places are planned in the in the coming future. So, in the first interview I did with Ralph, we were talking about you know the traveling and kind of getting to know Ralph and and why he does this stuff and the origin story of Ralph Velasco. In this interview, I want to dive into planning and scouting. You know the. Clearly, Ralph is the expert, so we're going to talk about how you get ready for a trip like this as a photographer and just as a regular person that's going to one of these amazing places. How do you get ready for it so that you can maximize your time there? Because pre presumably, you only have a couple of days in each spot. So, Ralph Velasco, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here again. Yeah, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Like I said, I, I can live vicariously through you. I get emails from you and like, hey, Frederick, I'm over here. I'm doing this. I'm in this strange hotel. There's no bandwidth. You you have got to be you've got to be like the favorite person on the airlines, or maybe the least favorite person on the airlines, because <laughs> you probably fly free everywhere you go. Is that I mean, how does that feel? No, not quite, but uh, I do have some status on some of the airlines, so I, I get the upgraded seat once in a while and get to use my miles for uh, some nice first-class trips around, you know, halfway around the world. So that's that's always fun. I splurge on those. That's awesome. That's 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 really cool. So let's let's dive into this. So you like in the introduction, I introduced you as a travel photographer, right? So first of all, just define travel photographer because we're all travel photographers, right? I don't go anywhere, even to the store generally, without a camera with me, even if it's just my iPhone, right? So what's a travel photographer? In my definition is that uh, a travel photographer has to be a, a jack of all trades, master of some. And by that, I mean that, uh, you know, there's so many different types of images that we should be on the lookout for when we are uh, shooting travel photography and not specifically maybe landscape or people photography, et cetera. But with travel photography, uh, we want to be able to come back with a, a, a nice, well-rounded set of images that tells the story of the place. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, it's virtually impossible to be a master of uh, all these different types of uh, genres of photography, but if we can be pretty good at a lot of them and hopefully master a few of them, uh, I think that uh, that's a really good start. Uh, and so, you know, by travel photography, uh, I, I think that it's something that's uh, it's fairly, uh, you know, it's it's there's a, a lot to it. It's more than just being a specific genre of of photographer. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, jack of all trade, jack of all trades, master of some. But that that doesn't mean that like when you say master of some, that means you need to be proficient at a lot of different ways of taking photos. For example, you're say you're in I don't know, Morocco and you want to do some long exposures of the water lapping on the the rocks there, right? So you need to understand the basics of long exposures and and you know 
well, I was going to say reciprocity failure, but that doesn't apply in, in digital. But but you have to understand these things, like from a from a situational standpoint. For example, okay, I want to do long exposures there because that's the right thing for this particular scene. But now I'm going to go do some street photography, so I need to use this particular lens, and I need to have some people skills and all that stuff, right? Yeah, and and you're really jumping from one type of photography to the other. Uh, sometimes, you know, certainly night photography. And and recent, I just got back from Iceland on Sunday with the group, and so there we're definitely photographing a lot of different uh, types of waterfalls, trying to get those longer exposures. So uh, I have to be able to uh, be proficient and be able to teach my people uh, how to capture those images best and uh, how to approach people, architecture, just all these different types of, of images. So um, I, I certainly don't uh, consider myself uh, proficient at all these different types of photography, uh, but I, uh, I, I like to think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good and uh, have a few that I, I excel at more. And I, and I think everyone could probably say that who travels quite a bit. Uh, we tend to have an interest in certain types of photography. We get really good at those. And then the other ones we sort of chip away at. And uh, I always say you can't get worse at photography. So yeah. the, more, the more you're doing it, the better you'll get at any type of uh, uh, genre that you're working on. Yeah, repetition. It's like, it's like driving. The more you drive, the better driver you become. With photography, the more, the more presses of that trigger finger or the shutter finger that you have, the better understanding you have of what's going to result from that image with the camera at those particular settings. So let's, let's talk about just preparation for these, and that's what I wanted to center this, this interview or this discussion on, and that's just the, the whole idea of the things that you do before you head out on one of these trips or in preparation for one of these trips. You mentioned scouting and you know just, just being prepared for when you go there. And I, I recently did a, uh, went on a shoot with a friend of mine, and uh, it was a it was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. We were in Santa Cruz, and we're going to go take some photos of some people on the beach, right, some friends on the beach. But it was at dusk, and it was just kind of like, let's just go out there and, and take some photos. We're photographers. We have our gear with us. But it turns out we get there, and there's like you have to – you kind of go into photojournalist mode because you got to assess the situation and figure out the best way to get the, the best kind of image that you can get given the variables that are presented to you, like – okay, we're losing light and the tide's coming in and there's rocks and there's people over there that are, could be in the background. How do you avoid those kinds of things? I mean, do you go out first and take notes? Do you, you know, do you, are you cognizant of the sunset time? Do you, I mean, how, how does a Ralph Velasco go out there and be prepared for your workshop group when you take them to a location so that they're going to get the best results possible? Well, I spend a lot of time scouting these locations beforehand. So typically if it's a two-week trip that I'm planning, I'll go about a year in advance and spend two weeks in that location and try to uh, go to all the different uh, locations uh, within a country, let's say, and be there at different times of day, find out when the best times of day are to be in particular locations, uh, you know, certainly considering the sun, uh, crowds, things like that, trying to get in, out in advance of the crowds. I mean, that's something that I'm really big on. So I tend to get my groups out fairly early and try to beat the, the crowds and um, beat the heat of the day, things like that. 
but it's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, time time consuming and expensive scouting that goes into these trips because uh, once I've got my group there, uh, I can't afford for there to be any mistakes, and yeah. so I try to get that all out of the way at the beginning. I might uh, like I I just uh, did Turkey. Well, that was the first trip that I did uh, about three months ago when I left, and I was there for two weeks and probably went to, I would say, 40, uh, 30 to 40 different locations in 14 days, but I'll include maybe six or seven on the trip, but I need to you know, get a taste and a feel for those different locations, figure out which ones uh, you know, f- uh, fold into the the trip the best as far as timing goes, and and uh, all these different variables. But uh, it, it's a lot of it comes down to spending a lot of time and money scouting these trips beforehand, because uh, uh, I want them to go without a hitch when I'm there with my group. Now, when you when you so for the average person, you know, that's that's not leading workshops and all this these sort of things. They they don't have a lot of time and or money to be to go on a full scouting mission. For example, if they know, you know, they're going to Europe, right? They know say they're going to Barcelona and they want to make sure they get great shots. This is a once in a lifetime trip for this person. So, there's not like they're going to fly to Barcelona, scout out the locations and then come back and then go. What should that person do? How can that person be prepared to get the right shots? Well, uh, without uh, being facetious, uh, th- that would be a great time to go on a tour because mm-hmm. someone like myself has already done that scouting. Now, I realize that not everyone likes to go on tours, uh, that you know, they're, they're more expensive because people like me have, have spent the time and money to, to, to uh, uh, you know, do all that preliminary work. But uh, let's say you're just going to a place on your own and uh, one of the things that I recommend, and uh, it's a, a, you know it's definitely touristy, is one of those hop-on, hop-off buses that mm-hmm. sort of takes you through all the city highlights very quickly. Uh, and if you can do that at the beginning of your trip, then you can get a really good overview of the place and come back and focus on uh, just a few of those locations and uh, get back there at the best time of day. But I, I always say that the, the number one tip I can give anyone is to get out early uh, because you're going to avoid the crowds, the heat of the day, traffic, all those things. And uh, you're going to get – I like to get out there maybe 7, 7.30 in the morning when the city's waking up, the locals on their way to work, kids on their way to school. Uh, those are the people that I like to get in my photographs. And um, I, I certainly recommend that for others. Uh, but it can be overwhelming to, to just land in a place. But also doing a preliminary research on uh, GettyImages.com, uh, mm-hmm. Corbis, and Flickr, and seeing what other professionals or even, even other uh, amateur photographers are photographing in a place and what interests you and uh, what you'd like to go. And I certainly don't want to copy what other people are doing, but uh, perhaps just putting your own spin on it, getting ideas. Yeah, 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 and that's that's 90% of it, right? You just get in there, and there, like you said, there's services like Getty and iStock and Shutterstock or just Google Images, right, and do a search and see, oh, look at that awesome photo in this place that I'm going, and, you know, say, note where it is in the time of day and try, not try to copy it, right, but at least you get an idea of what's possible from that particular location, right? 
For sure, and uh, you could see what uh, you know, where people are spending their time, at what time of day. Uh, you know, search night photography. You could put in all these different keywords to see uh, what people are shooting in those locations, and that gives you ideas for for what's there. And then uh, I always recommend trying to put your own spin on it. Yeah. Now, Ralph, what about gear? Right. So. And this is a problem I see with with lots of photographers because I've attended a bunch of workshops. I haven't led any workshops yet, but I I've seen I've been on workshops where there there seems to always be the person that has more gear than they need, right? So there's like bags and bags and Scotty vests and I got this DSLR and another one over here and a backup in the uh, in the bag and you know look at all these expensive lenses and strobes and all this stuff. And then there's the other person that has like a, a you know like a little Fuji X100s you know with a fixed lens and they're making awesome images. When you when you advise people on the type of gear that they should bring to one of these workshops, let's pick one. Let's say you know Iceland. What do you tell them? What do you say? This is what you need to bring in order to to bring back the goods. Yeah, I always provide a gear list beforehand, but I emphasize that, and I mentioned this in the last interview that. I typically shoot with one body and one lens. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a 24 to 120 lens on a full frame camera. Uh, again, I miss some shots because I don't maybe have the, the exact right lens, but I like to think that I get other shots because I'm very flexible, mobile, quick moving. Uh, you know, Iceland, where it's a lot of landscape photography, waterfalls, things like that, uh, play, you know, things that are, are not going to are not really moving subjects as opposed to say uh, the market in Fez or uh, another city scene or street photography. Uh, it's a very different type of photography so it's very quick moving and uh, it's it's not a good time to try to shoot manual. Uh, yeah. you know, I recommend aperture priority, Have uh, I shoot auto ISO, auto white balance, uh, because we're really moving through these places fairly quickly and people aren't going to wait for us to figure out settings and things like that. Uh, and I think one thing that surprises a lot of the people on my trips is that they are um, surprised at how quickly I shoot yeah. uh, because, um, I, you know, the people aren't going to sit there and pose for me. Uh, you know, they might, but those are usually not the kinds of shots that I'm after. I prefer the, the more candid shots. So um, when, when you're out there and you're, you're, you know, say you're in India or something, and you're, you're on the streets and presumably you don't speak the language and, you know, there's this great shot of, you know, say this person here and you want to, you want to grab this shot. How do you approach that person for that shot? Or do you, I mean, what, what's, what's the flow? You're walking down the street, you got a group of people with you, presumably all that look very foreign to that area and you all have cameras and this awesome scene is going on, what's the start to finish flow of getting that shot? Well, um, you know, I, I'm trying to assess the overall situation. I, I want to try to, again, get that candid shot. So uh, I might shoot in between people and, and try to get that shot very quickly. Um, I Because I've been to a place and scouted it out, I, I usually get all my shots on those scouting trips, but I am shooting along with my group, and I tell people that I'm going to be shooting alongside you, but I'm here to help you. Your photography comes first. 
but I am uh, photographing at the same time, so I might uh, get a couple quick shots, uh, point out the uh, the opportunity. Uh, if the person, uh, sometimes I think it's good to photograph in in small groups or even one or two or two or three people, because then when the person is looking at one photographer, the other one's getting a more candid view, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a teamwork that, that can happen. Uh, you know, one person can engage the, the subject, the other one can get the candid shots because they're talking to the other person. But uh, I'm trying to uh, point out photo opportunities, maybe talk about the light, quality of light. You know, maybe there's harsh shadows or something that uh, we, don't, uh, we don't want on the subject. So uh, always trying to uh, instill in people that they need to look deeper into the scene and yeah. to notice busy backgrounds, notice uh, shadows that are too harsh or, you know, ways to improve the, the, the subject that they're photographing, the, that yeah. scene. Got it. Got it. Cool. So then let's, let's switch over to um, the, the idea of, and I wrote a note here, just sort of the complete story, right? So, when you, again, you know, using the example of myself, when I get to a location, you know, at least a while ago, I'd get there and not really know what I wanted to shoot. So it's like, oh, wow, you know, say I'm in, I'm in New Zealand. It's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Uh, okay, I need to get some shots of some mountains. Okay, uh, now I want to get some shots of, you know, this tree over here and now this. And, you know, but you end up with a, with a bunch of cool shots but nothing to sort of weave them together. And I know you're kind of a proponent of having an overall wrapper around that and, and telling a story. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, I, I, you know, certainly nothing that I created or invented, but certainly I'm always thinking about getting that overall shot of the scene and then breaking it down into smaller components, so the medium and detail shots, too, that make it up. Uh, that's uh, one of the ways to tell a story is to start big and then sort of zoom in uh, on individual parts of the scene too. Um, I uh, I talked last time about the the travel the uh, photography app that I came up with my shot list for travel, and that uh, again is about preparing and having an idea of what you want to photograph before you even get to a place. Yeah. And yeah, and so the 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 more you know what you're on the lookout for, the more you're uh, going to see it and recognize and be able to to take advantage of that uh, photo opportunity. But one of the things I always recommend, uh, especially in the morning or whenever we go out for a a new shoot during the day, is to look over all the settings on your camera, make sure they're right for those conditions right then and there. Maybe last night you were out doing some night photography and you were on a tripod and you've got your, your VR or IS off and you want to make sure that's on. And just all these settings are, are right for whatever it is that you're, you're photographing at that moment. Yeah, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to get out there and be fiddling in the dark or wherever you are with knobs and dials and trying to figure out the right setting or even worse – and I've done this. You know, when I was in the, and I was in the military, we were shooting film. You forget 
or you assume that you have one kind of film in the camera when you, in fact, you have another kind of film in the camera. <laughs> <laughs> well done, and man. you go out and do a whole job with, you know, black and white film when you thought you had color slide film in the camera and not good. Yeah, but those those days are over. Hopefully, those days are over. <laughs> so, Ralph, let's let's wrap it up here. So, the workshops. What workshops do you have coming up in the future? Well, I'm leaving next week for uh, Cuba. I've got a people-to-people -people program there. Uh, that one is uh, sold out and registrations closed. But uh, in excuse me, in uh, August, I'm uh, bringing a small group of just four participants to Copper Canyon, Mexico. Cool. And uh, that's one of my favorite places in Mexico. It's uh, four times bigger and it's deeper than the Grand Canyon. Mm. And there's one of the great train rides of the world going right through it. And I was first introduced to it about three years ago when I uh, had an assignment to shoot the travel and cultural images for a cookbook on the regional cuisine of Mexico. And we had gone to something like 40 plus locations in 35 days. And uh, the one place I said I wanted to bring a group back to was Copper Canyon. I and uh, you've got the Tarahumara people who are just fascinating. They're known as the running people. They have very distinctive faces, uh, very distinctive facial features, wear a very distinctive clothing. Uh, so that clothing is certainly going to be on my shot list. So uh, making sure that uh, capturing anything distinctive in the place. So that's that's a place I'm going to bring a group back to. I've got a trip to Central Europe in September, uh, Tuscany, that trip sold out for September, Bhutan, Nepal in October, and then uh, Cambodia trip in early December. Wow. Uh, a couple of your, your listeners are signed up for that, so that was nice. Oh, very cool. Thanks, yeah. thanks to Army for supporting our, uh, our guest, Ralph. That's very cool. Appreciate wow. that. I uh, I'm one of these days. I promise I'm coming on one of these trips, Ralph. I am coming on one of these trips, probably in 2015. If you're still doing the trips, when I assume you will be, but oh, for sure, no. I'm coming. You have any plan for for Asia, like somewhere like in like Korea or anything like that? Uh, not Korea, but uh, again, Cambodia. I'm doing in December, and I'll probably do that again next uh, next year around the same time because it's a Great time to be there. I may be scouting Vietnam after this trip in December, so that would be for a future trip next year. Um, other than that, in Asia, nothing. But I, uh, I've got uh, Romania. I'll be scouting this year, and I just got back from the Balkans, which is uh, like Croatia, Montenegro, Slovenia. Beautiful area, and uh, I'll be scouting in Sicily as well. In uh, September, October. So uh, a lot of cool new trips for next year, and I'll be bringing back a lot of the the favorites, um, you know, from from this year and the past several years. So uh, a lot yeah, of you cool sound stuff. like you sound like you'd make the perfect secret agent because you're <laughs> that'd be the perfect movie plot. The travel photographer's cover is travel photographer, but really he's a secret agent going to these cool places like Impossible Mission Force. Oh, we need to talk about that because I I've just written about three pages of notes for the exact same idea that uh, I I think it would be kind of cool. <laughs> that would be cool. I mean, that's a script. That's a script. You need to write that and, and get it out there, you know. And you could star in it. You could star in your own your own feature. 
So cool. Right. Well, where where should people go to uh, to sign up for these workshops or to see some of your work and get in you know get that iPhone app that you were talking about? Yeah, I'd love it if people would visit my website at ralphvelasco.com. That's pretty much where everything is. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Google Plus, all at, at Ralph Velasco. And uh, if you go to the, to the website and look for tours, hover over that, you'll see a drop-down of all the future trips I have coming up. Uh, if you go to iTunes and you search for uh, My Shot Lists for Travel or Ralph Velasco, uh, the app should come up there, as well as my most recent uh, ebook, Essence of a Place, a Travel Photographer's Guide to Using a Shot List for Capturing Any Destination. Mm -hmm. And uh, with regards to the app, uh, I'm in the process of updating it right now with uh, having capability of being able to share your images on Facebook, Twitter, via email, uh, updating all new images, verbiage. And so that's an update that people can look forward to in the next probably 30 to 60 days or so. But uh, if you purchase it now, of course, you'll get that update automatically when it comes out. But uh, we're trying to... to to update it for iOS 6 and 7. Love it, love it. It's so much work, though. You know, you, you don't realize that it seems so easy uh, to, to, put, to do an update, but uh, there's always so much more to it than you think. Right, and, you know, iOS 8 is on the horizon, too, so... Oh, so i got to get it done before that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a conveyor belt, my friend. It never ends. It ends like holding back the, uh, the C, you know, just... Yeah. Yeah. But it's fun. Well, cool, Ralph. We'll, uh, you know, have have a safe trip on this next upcoming uh, trip. Cuba, did you say? Yep, the next one? yep, coming up next week, yep. Yep, have a safe trip, get some good shots, and, you know, my advice to you is just, you know, plan. Make sure you plan. <laughs> Do your scouting and homework, you know, before you I'll get try. out. I'll yeah. try. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Ralph, always a pleasure to have you on this week in photo, and I will uh, we'll catch up to you next time. Hopefully, after the next couple of trips, we'll uh, we'll catch up again. That would be fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on, Frederick. You're welcome. Take care, Ralph. Take care.